So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. And we are picking up Paul's journey. And this is, we're going to, including today, we have seven weeks left in uh, Luke's definition here of, of the Acts of, you know, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. Here's what was going on in the early church as Luke is writing these things down as a testimony to Theophilus. The last half of the book of Acts, Luke is pressing into the life of Paul. But an overarching theme, God is really showing that, you know, in the Gospels, we have that narrative of Jesus's ministry. Again, his death, burial, and resurrection there in the beginning of Acts, we have his ascension, and we have him sending the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, upon the church, upon believers in Jesus, that we would be empowered by him, the Almighty God taking up residence within us. We as human beings are now defined through faith in Jesus Christ that we are the temple of the Almighty God. Father, Son, Spirit lives within. That testimony that we have of that gift being given in the very beginning and that every person who expresses faith in Jesus Christ, that moment, in a twinkling of an eye, there, there is an instant transition from death to life in that moment. And as we live with him, as we follow him, we are told that there is a sanctification process, a separation process, a dedication process to him that we're going to talk about to this morning, that that's, that's the gap of life that we live from the moment of faith in Jesus Christ up until that moment that we see him face to face. And what's going to happen in that moment when we see him face to face? Glorification, completion, fullness, we will have the image of the eternal God forever and ever. Amen? Incredible promises, past, present, and future. As Luke is communicating the testimony of Paul's life, the over, one of those major umbrella themes of what was the effect of Jesus and faith in Jesus, not just in the Jews, but in the Gentiles. It's this unification of human beings as one in, in, in their creator. Because we see all the way back in Genesis, when sin enters in, there's an immediate division from our relationship with our creator. There's an immediate division between human beings. And in Jesus Christ, it is a reunification. And that's the major theme um, of Acts. And it's definitely the major theme of these last chapters. Luke is going to be repetitious. Paul is going to be giving his historical testimony multiple times in these last chapters of Acts. So you've got to sit in the question, well, why is Luke being so repetitious? Why is he saying the same thing over and over in different ways? What are we supposed to clue in about? What is it that he is trying to communicate? And over, the overarching theme seems to be, here was who Paul was. Here's how Jesus Christ finally got a hold of him. Here's how Jesus empowered him, spoke to him, sent him. Here's what Paul did through the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Here are the Jews that came to faith through the proclamation of the gospel. Here are the Gentiles that came to faith through the proclamation of the gospel. And realizing for all of us as believers, whether we're Jew or whether we're Gentile, that all these cultural differences, these genetic differences, we have been unified as one in Jesus Christ. And that's this major theme that's being communicated. So the end, a couple of weeks ago in 2114, we have this resignation that, of the believers that, they're, that 
this resignation, and it's and again, it's not a. In some ways, it can be being resolved. In some ways, it can be lifting that white flag to the Lord that I surrender to Your will. But remember, the Holy Spirit is communicating to Paul and to the churches that when Paul goes to Jerusalem, that chains await, and they're trying to they're encouraging him that if chains await you, if suffering awaits you, Paul, don't go. And Paul is going to go because he says that he's been bound by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem, even though he knows that that suffering awaits him. The last time, if, if you remember also, just the, this idea as we, as we look at this to parallel that Paul is walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, even in Jesus' suffering. So as we sit with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, that, that those hours before he is arrested, what is Jesus doing? He's praying, and he's praying to the Father, and he's asking the Father that the suffering that he knows is coming, that that would be removed from him. Yet, nevertheless, Lord, your will be done and not mine. And you, you, you see Jesus' repetitious prayer in that circumstance. In, the, in Luke's gospel, we have the agony of that prayer as he is sweating, even you know, blood mixed into his sweat as he is praying. But Jesus being resolved to the Lord's will. Here, Luke in the church and Paul being reserved, uh, resigned to and yielded to whatever the Lord's will is in the future. So this is, this is uh, that final, again, that, that theme and that foundation as we move forward. Because now in verse 15, they're making their way to Jerusalem finally. As, uh, as, been, as, been, as has been communicated in these last couple chapters. So verse 15 of chapter 21 says after those days so they're in Caesarea we we packed we prepared we made arrangements and went up to Jerusalem also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manassan of Cyprus an early disciple with whom we were to lodge and when we had come to Jerusalem the brethren received us gladly on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads, literally myriads means 10,000, it's in the plural, how many 10,000s, of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, to abandon Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore... <clears throat> Do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, 
from things strangled and from sexual immorality. And you can go back to Acts 15 and look at the details of that conversation. So again, here's the main idea of what we're going to press into this morning. Again, this what is it that God does? Like what is, what is God in the, the business of doing in his character, in his nature, in his words, in his actions? What is it that God does? Because here, again, as, as Paul lands in Jerusalem, he's giving the testimony of here's what God has done through his life. And we'll press into that idea in just a minute. So back here in verse 15, <clears throat> they're picking up, they're leaving from Caesarea, they're finally making their way into Jerusalem. And this man, Manasseh, he's of Cyprus, this is the same place that Barnabas is from. We don't have any other details of, of who this guy is, even in church history. But here's, here's the, the testimony that Luke gives to him about him to us is that he was an early disciple. And what early means, we're not sure how early. It's possible that Manasseh would have been one of possibly the 70. Again, here's a, here's a lot of ideas. So how early did he become a disciple of Jesus? Did he become a disciple of Jesus while Jesus was still in his public ministry? That's one of the ideas. That he was one of those who was following Jesus. He was one of those. It wasn't just the 12 disciples that were following Jesus. There were more. It wasn't just the 12 disciples that were sent out to proclaim the gospel and empowered to, to cast out demons and to heal just like the 12 disciples were. There were more. So in Luke, we're told that there were 70 it's a possibility that Manasseh was one of these very early believers that he witnessed Jesus' public ministry and, and was set out just like these other guys. That's what this word early means. It means he's old, he's ancient, he was there from the very beginning. Or um, in early in the book of Acts, remember when Judas is, uh, needs to be replaced, Peter brings up this whole idea that he needs to be replaced with a man who has been with us since the very beginning. So again, that idea that Manasseh might have been one of these men who was there from the very beginning. Some say that he might have been one of the 120 there in the beginning of Acts. Some believe that he may have been one of the 3,000 that was saved on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was sent and Peter preached the gospel and 3,000 Jews came to faith in Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost. So. He's there from the very beginning and early. And what's important is that he has a home in Jerusalem. Now, what we have to remember, it says, Luke says that we prepared. So you got to press into the idea, who are Paul's traveling companions? Back in chapter 18, no, not 18, chapter 20, verse 4, we have Sopater of Berea, which is in you know, modern-day Greece, all these are. Um, Aristarchus and Segundus. There's Thessalonians, Gaius is of Derby, Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus. These guys are all from modern-day Turkey. You have Luke, who is a Gentile himself. So you have at least eight of Paul's traveling companions are Gentiles, traveling with a Jewish believer in Jesus. When they come to Caesarea, as they've gone to all these communities, they're, they're locking into and engaging with disciples with the body of Christ that as you get closer to Jerusalem is going to be dominated by what? By Jewish believers. So here Paul is bringing Gentile believers with him and what do they have in their hand? 
I mean, this is, this is one of the things that we miss in this circumstance. They're coming with the gift from the Gentile churches to the congregations that are impoverished in Jerusalem and Judea. They're coming with a gift to their brothers and sisters to help them in their poverty. They hear Manasseh standing in this gap. He's, he's probably a Jew. There's a significant Jewish um, population in Cyprus. Remember, Barnabas was from the island of Cyprus also early believer of Jesus, he's, he's providing some kind of um, uh, connection, some kind of stability. This is a place where all of these Gentile believers are going to stay in safety as they arrive in Jerusalem. And this is what's really important to pull out. Like As you get closer to Jerusalem, the culture is going to be dominated more and more to a greater degree by Jewish customs, whether it's customs directly from the Word of God or customs that have been developed over time within the Jewish culture. But what is the Jewish culture dominated by at this time in history? They're dominated by Rome. They're dominated by a pagan government that they are in rebellion to. So when you sit in Old Testament testimony, the Jews were allowed to be governed by God and to govern themselves under God as long as what? As long as they obeyed God. When they turned away from God, and there's, there's repetitious testimony in the Old Testament, when the Jews turned away from their God and from his commands, what happened to them? God brought oppressors, whether it was the Palestinians, the, the, the Philistines, whether it was the Assyrians, whether it was the Babylonians, that, that final act of bringing, bringing down the Babylonians to destroy the temple, to carry the Jews away. That seems to be what broke them of their idolatry. But when they come back into the land, you sit in the, you sit in the passion we're going to talk about zeal and passion this morning. You sit in the passion of a man like Nehemiah. I don't know what it would have been like to be around Nehemiah. When the Jews come back into the land and they begin to marry foreign and pagan wives again, this is one of the reasons. Uh, this is something that God told them to avoid because those relationships would lead them into idolatry. So God disciplines them, and then they come back into the land, and they start engaging in these marriages again. And then Nehemiah comes down. What does Nehemiah do? He freaks out. He goes up to some guys, and he tears their beards out. Ladies, you guys, you, don't, you all don't have beards, but, you know, your facial hair is pretty sensitive. I can't imagine another man coming up to me because I'm in sin and yanking my beard out, zeal and passion. And not only that, they divorce those women. And where, where did, again, this, this is a super weird, um, passionate, zealous testimony that we have in God's word that they divorce their wives, they put them away. We have no idea what those future relations, you know, did they care for them? Did, what about the children that they, we don't have any testimony than that other than here's, here's, you will not do that again. So now when the Jews are sitting underneath the authority of Rome, what are you going to feel like? Aren't you going to feel like as a culture as the promised children of Israel promised to Abraham? Don't you feel like you're going to be sitting in cultural disobedience? 
So yeah, I'm bringing all this up because as Paul is entering into Jerusalem with Gentile believers in Jesus, and he's proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, there is a huge opposition to them as a sect. There is a huge opposition to them within the Jewish re uh, religious leadership that they are promoting and proclaiming uh, false beliefs, a false messiah. There, as they are coming in with Gentiles, there is a strong aversion to any kind of Gentile influence in, in Jerusalem at this time. This is sitting roughly uh, in the year of our Lord, A.D. 57. So Paul hasn't been in Jerusalem in about five years. The Romans destroy Jerusalem and they destroy the temple in 70 A.D. So again, you got to sit in the political climate the cultural climate. So this is a lot of the reason, you know, these, these Gentile believers that are with Paul, they're going to be used as the excuse to, for the Jews to want to wanna kill Paul. So there's, there's a whole bunch going on here uh, between Jews and Gentiles, between the leaders of Israel and the, and the leaders of Rome. And again, Luke's testimony through this all is the attention is upon who our Lord and Savior is, and the unification of all through faith in Jesus Christ. So Manasseh is providing a, a safe place for them to lodge and literally to receive them as guests. He's receiving them into his home. He is taking responsibility for them. He is caring for them. This is Eastern hospitality. He is protecting them. This is the gap that this man is standing in and my opinion, the de definition of him as an early disciple, I think he's one of those that was there in the early public ministry of Jesus following him, empowered by him, radically changed by him, for sure. So as they come into Jerusalem, they're greeted by the brethren. The idea here would be just those, you know, part of Manasseh's household, those who know you know, and aware as they're immediately entering in. The next day, they go and present themselves to James. So James, this is the half-brother of Jesus. He is seen as the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. And as they are welcomed in, in with, uh, you know, just with open arms, again, this is going to be a long-winded conversation where they're kind of having a staff meeting, so to say, as brothers and sisters, where it's not just James. We're not sure which of the apostles was still in Jerusalem at this time or they've all been sent out. But here James and the elders of the church in Jerusalem, they're all gathered together because Paul's got a reputation. So... Paul's activities, whether true or whether false or whether they've been, you know, how they've been morphed and those kinds of things, Paul's one of those guys that most people probably have an opinion about. You know, we can sit in our, our uh, you know, Christian leadership within our own nation, those who have a public voice, whether male or female, where... You know, if we say a name, most of us are going to know that name because we've been exposed to them in some fashion. Just if I say Billy Graham, most of you have heard of Billy Graham, and most of you have an opinion about who Billy Graham was, what his ministry was about, whatever you've heard by testimony. And some of what you know about Billy Graham, it could be true, and it could be false. And again, just the same with any kind of leadership. So the church hears information about Paul, reports come back as people travel in. And now Paul is allowed to give testimony to not what he has done, but to what who has done. To what God's done. 
And this is, we, we're sitting in a, a calendar change this morning, right? Here we are, first Sunday in a brand new year. Psalm 90, there is a, a request, a prayer to God in that psalm that God would teach us to number our days. You have so many days in this life. And the purpose of numbering our days is so that our heart would gain wisdom. When you sit and you meditate in the days that you've already lived, your relationship with the Lord today, what you're planning with, with the future days, however many you may have in the future, we're, we're sitting in this, um, this, this turn today. Especially just where we are, you know, we sit in just the weirdness of the last couple of years with COVID and all of its influences upon us. But every year we have this, we have this calendar flip where I think, I think it's healthy and I think it's good, whether it's you do it on an annual basis, a daily basis, a weekly basis, whatever that repetition is, to just pause and to kind of look back and ask that question, God, what have you done? We can sit in those big stories in the Bible that, you know, that they'd be back there teaching in children's ministry, you know, those, those big things that we all know about. God created the heavens and the earth, and you can sit in Adam and Eve's sin, in the flood, and all the different testimonies and accounts that we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Look at what God did. Again, it is very clear that we are told what God has done so that we will know and understand who our creator is, that we will trust in him, that we will yield to him, that we will worship him, serve him alone, and follow him alone. That's why we meditate. That's why we teach. This is what God has done historically in big testimony as we can sit in the word of God. You can sit in biographies. You can sit in the testimony. This is what God did through these individuals throughout history. And those are fabulous testimonies to sit in. But I really want to encourage you to take the time in the day, in the week, in the month upcoming, and just sit in prayer with the Lord. Sit with paper. Sit in a journal. Sit in your personal relationship with your creator. And what is it that God has done in your life from the moment of your conception through you know your childhood some of us have a lot of meditation i can sit in my years apart from christ i can sit in all that god has done in my life since i have known him i'm coming up on 23 years as a believer in just a few months i have i have a lot to memorialize of what god has done and this is why this is important. I forget. I forget those things that God has spoken to me. I forget those promises that he's given to me. I forget the different ways that he has saved me. I forget, and again, not, not just salvation from death, but delivered me out of danger and circumstances in my life. I forget how he carried me through different circumstances. I forget that he has promised to always be with me. I forget that he is on the throne. I forget that he is light and life. I forget that he cares about me and that he loves me. I forget that he has promised to give to me all of himself for all eternity and to be a co-inheritor with, with him. And I, I don't forget those things for a long time. 
But I'm talking about as we travel through the day. I forget. This is, this, is a, this is a moment to look back and remember because there are things that you need to remember what God has done because you need to trust who he is today. You need to believe that I have watched God act in all of these different circumstances. I have heard God speak in these different ways. I have seen him lead me here and there. And again, if, the, if you, when you look back on your history, if you don't see those things and you don't know those things, then that's that moment now of God, manifest yourself to me. Let me hear from you as I am choosing to kneel to you and to worship you and to follow you, to trust that you are who you claim to be as you're leading me in these next steps, to be, to be free from striving and trying to go my own way, but just to simply trust in a joyous and peaceful relationship as your creator day in and day out. That's what we're looking to do. Now, Paul says here, it's not, what does he give testimony in? Here is the things that God has done. How? What does it say? Through his ministry. This is through Paul's service. And this is something that's fascinating to me. Um, I have a very strong aversion to any kind of self-promotion. I have a very strong aversion to um, American capitalist business marketing within the body of Christ. It's important, you know, I understand as, as different ministries and personalities, pastors, preachers, evangelists, prophet, whatever they may be, there, you know, there's a, a name is associated with the message. Hopefully that message is always tied to Jesus. I have, I have a very strong aversion just when I hear a name exalted in, than any other than the name of Jesus Christ. But here's the reality. When you, when you press into those who are zealously, passionately dedicated to the Lord and following the Lord, the Lord is at work in their lives. And whether that is a private ministry that none of us will ever know about, or that's a public ministry, like Paul had a very public ministry where his name was associated with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he was promoting. The reality is God is at work through you. Isn't that humbling? That's, that's, that's tearfully humbling to me. Who am I? But, but here, like, here's the weight of it. What I choose to do, what I choose to think, what I choose to say, the service that I choose to perform, the work that I choose to do, I can either, I can either allow the almighty God to work in me and through me in my service to you and to whoever he allows me to serve, or it can be all about me. And again, it's, it's easy to, to judge those on the outside. And, you know, I don't, I have no desire to throw stones at anybody. I don't want to focus on anybody else. I want to focus on Jesus, but I want to press into this idea in my relationship with him as I'm meditating on what it is that he's done and I'm meditating on what I believe he's directing me to do today. And as I'm making plans for this year and as many days as he gives me in the future, God, I want you to work through me. And I don't care if it's public. I don't care if it's private. I don't care if my name's out there. I don't care if nobody knows my name whatsoever. But I want to know, I want to see, and I want to experience you working 
not just in me, but through me. I want my life to count in your life for the name of Jesus. Amen? And I want that same for you. Look at what Paul did. Are you kidding me? My life is not a candle in comparison to the sun of Paul's life. And that's not condemnation to self. That's not uh, um, condemnation to anybody. I just, I look at, look at what God did with a man who is willing to say yes every day. Yes, this is God's plan and his purpose and his calling and appointing and sending for Paul's life. This was prepared. This was God's will for his life. But whatever God's will is for my life, I want to make sure that I am shining Jesus' glory back to him regardless of how big it looks in the culture. Does that make sense? Paul's life was Paul's life and appointing and calling and created and plans and purposes from God. Yours is and mine is the Lord's will be done. But God, as much as it has to do with me, give to me this zealous commitment to you. Look at the testimony for these Jews. Here are believers, myriads, tens of thousands of Jews believe in Jesus Christ. And not only that, it says they're zealous for the law. That's not a stone to pick up and throw at those Jewish believers because they're not zealous for the law, for the law's sake and their self-righteousness sake. They're zealous for the word of God. I'm, I am passionately zealous for the word of God. This is how I know who our God is. I love hearing from the Lord in this document. I love turning my attention to it. Um, I love not making any excuses for it and just sitting down and reading and studying and allowing the Lord to speak, but not just the word of God. I want to have a zeal, a zeal a, an enthusiastic commitment to Jesus and Jesus alone in my life. That's the testimony of Paul's life. That's the testimony of who God was to him and through him. That's the testimony that we can go sit in all of those different communities. And as Paul is speaking publicly to this gathering, he has a line of men behind him that are in eternity because he chose to do what Jesus told him to do. And that's exactly what I want for me, and that's exactly what I want for you. And now as Paul is here in Jerusalem, and he's coming, there's, there's information about him the elders of the church know that the church as a whole in Jerusalem, that they're going to hear that Paul is in town. And when they gather together as believers, guess what's going to be the topic on their tongue? Paul. Paul's gospel. What they've heard from Jewish believers and Jewish non-believers coming back and reporting on what Paul has done. So the elders, they're... they're, they're preemptively trying to dissipate the false testimony about Paul within the body of Christ in community at Jerusalem to keep unity in the body and not allow Satan to get a foothold in division about different people's opinions and testimonies about Paul. You see this? So 
the elders have, there's four men that are there, and it says that they've made a vow. And again, we're going to press into this idea just again as we change calendar here. This is that we have a cultural tradition of New Year's resolutions. I am resolved to do A, B, or C. I am resolved not to do A, B, or C as a New Year's resolution. Here, a vow is a lot. There's no wiggle room out of it, right? We make a New Year's resolution. I'm going to lose X amount of pounds. I'm not going to eat this anymore. And then, you know, two weeks later, I'm off the wagon, right? Or on the wagon, I don't remember. Um, the vow that these men have given, it's seen, this is, this is a Nazarite vow. And a Nazarite vow, its definition is in Numbers chapter 6. We don't have a clue what it's all about. It is, it is a self imposed decision to separate yourself and dedicate yourself to God for a reason. The most famous Nazarite that we have in the Old Testament is Samson. Samson's Nazarite vow was not self-imposed. Jesus, appearing as the angel of the Lord, appeared to Samson's mom and to his dad and called Samson to this vow to be a Nazarite for his entire life. When you sit with Hannah as she is praying to God for a son, she commits to that her son, which ends up being Samuel, that Samuel will be a Nazarite his entire life. So you can sit in God causing an individual to be this Nazarite. You can sit with a parent dedicating their child to be separated to the Lord as a Nazarite. And Samuel presses into that. And then the rest of this, this, this practice that we have, it's whether a man or a woman is choosing for whatever reason to separate themselves to the Lord, whether it's for the rest of their life or whether it's for a specific period of time, there's, there's a procedure that's given in Numbers chapter 6. Um, at the end of the very last song that we're singing today is the priestly blessing. And I think, I think it's, it's fitting and it's, and it's timely because at the end of Numbers chapter 6, at the end of all this definition of dedicating yourself to the Lord, the Lord gives instructions. This is how you will place my name upon my children. And we're going to sing that song, the last song that we sing today, this, this priestly blessing for the Lord to be placed upon us. But here, there's, in the procedure that's given, these men have, they've fulfilled whatever the vow is, separating themselves for whatever period of time this is. And so there's the biblical Old Testament commands, and there's also the cultural nuances for the Jews of the time. And the church is saying to Paul, hey, to show to the church that you are a still a good Jewish boy that you believe in the Old Testament that you were walking in ordering in regards to the commands of the Old Testament you should finance you should pay for this final purification process for these four men and in the process again in numbers it gives here's the sacrifices there's a sin offering there's a burn offering there's all these different offerings 
that each one of these men need to perform in these final seven days of purification as they're going to shave their heads, their hair is going to be burned on the altar, these sacrifices are going to be performed. And what's really interesting, these are Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah in his sacrifice on the cross for all sins, right? And here you have the early church still participating in animal sacrifices, walking in order in the community. And again, this is a huge dynamic of, of the culture that we can't even press into, especially the, the, the temple being destroyed in 70 AD and all of these things going away. But here's the, the, the big idea when it comes to a vow, is that there's a lot more weight behind it than just a simple, you know, I'm making a New Year's resolution. There is a, whether it's the Lord has spoken to you, whether the Lord's spoken to your parents as a young child and dedicating you. But here is, is I want to, I want to, um, encourage you to spend time with the Lord and ask him this question. Is there a vow you would have me to commit to you for the rest of my life, for a season? And again, B, I don't want there to be any kind of religious weirdness in this. I don't want you to feel any pressure as I am in this discussion with the Lord. I'm more certain than the Lord. I don't feel like I can vow this because when I look at myself in the mirror, I realize I am incapable of performing anything I vow to the Lord. How about you parents? You want, you want to vow to the Lord that you're never going to yell at your children again? You're going to be successful in performing that? So th this, this isn't what that is dealing with. This is, this is dealing with, is your almighty God speaking to you right now in a way where he is calling you to separate yourself even further to him, whether it's permanently or whether it's for a specific season. Maybe he's calling you to prayer. Maybe he's calling you to an area of specific service where he wants to do something in you and through you as you serve him, the ministry that he is calling you to and directing you to. Maybe there is that you really need to press into prayer in a season of repentance, of confession, of I need to dedicate this time to the Lord, not just in this flippant, um, yeah, I'm in agreement with that, I want to do that, but where you'd make this vow to the Lord as though you have made a vow to the Almighty God that I believe that Jesus is the Christ. That is a vow, that is a promise, that is you have taken him to yourself and taken no other. You can sit in a marriage vow. As you sit in your vows as spouses, you have taken this person to be your spouse and no other. And the, the vows and the commitment, that kind of level of vow is what's being discussed in this. And again, I don't want to... I don't want to feed you any kind of religion, but I do want you to, in integrity, in humility, ask the Lord the simple question. Would you have me dedicate myself to you in this kind of commitment where you're desiring to separate me for something? 
you're calling me to, to lay aside these other things and to do this. Where I'm not looking for my own strength, I'm not looking for my religious badge, but I am looking to offer myself to you fully as a living sacrifice. And then, like I said, I am asking God this question. I don't have an answer for this. But I'm asking, in, in, as we've prayed this morning, as we've worshiped, you know, I've heard this repetitious thing over and over again. Again, to, to offer myself as a living sacrifice, all of myself. I'm sitting in the memorial of, oh yeah, this is what God said. This is, this is why he's brought me here. These are the promises that he has given to me. These are the things that he has directed me to do. Lord, forgive me and cleanse me for where I've failed or where I've forgotten, where I've made missteps. I am offering myself to you fresh today, not in my own strength and not in my own ability, but I'm looking for you to do what it is that you do. I sit in the testimony of my own life, the life of my brothers and sisters, the life and the truth of the word of God. This is what you've done in the past. And I'm begging that you do it again. When I listen to the news of the culture, if I were to sit in any prediction of 2022, I think that there is upheaval and misery coming in our culture. I think the contention is going to increase. This is an election year. Pol political junk is going to go through the roof. Lord, remove that out of me. We sit in the, the entertainment and just the, what is promoted to us in all forms of media. Everything is disgusting, filth, opposition to the Almighty God. That is what's growing. I have a great prayer for the next generation. I am praying that God gets a hold of the young generation as we've talked about the Passion Conference that's coming up, that's starting tonight, as we pray for our own youth that are within our congregation, as I pray for my own children. I am begging God to get a hold of the next generation. My age, I'm, I'm 45, the Gen Xers. We've had, our, we've had the baton passed to us, and yes, there's a lot going on that God has moved and, and done so many things through my generation, but my generation overall, culturally in the world that we live in, has been a long slide down, and sin has only grown. I sit in my children's generation right now, oh my. You sit in the statistics of those who are turning away from the church, from organized religion, my children's generation, to the greatest degree ever. The acceptance of all forms of immorality that stand in opposition to the word of God, my children's generation, accepting that and receiving that to a greater degree than ever. I am praying for this young generation that they will rebel that they will grow stiff necks for Jesus. I'm praying that for me, and I'm not just praying that for the young, I'm praying that for the old. God, here we are. Worship team, come on up. God, here we are. You and you alone are the almighty God. You've created the heavens and the earth. You've created us. You have saved us. Your faith in your son, you dwell in us. You, you promise us, Lord, 
that anything that you direct us to do, that all things are possible in you. You promise us, Jesus, that you are with us even to the end of the age. You're with me right now. You'll be with me tomorrow. Lord, all of us, we can, we can sit with Paul and we can sit in the details, the full and clear details about what it is that you've done in our lives in the past. Some of those things that you've been done, Lord, they, they've been great and they've been wonderful. Some of those things that you've done, Lord, they really hurt. Some of those things that you've done in our lives, Lord, we wanted to kick against you. We, want, we, we cried out and said, where were you? Why didn't you act? But Lord, when we pause, and as we, as we bow, as we stand, and as we let you as our God answer our questions, you reveal to us your, your grandeur, your majesty, your plans and your purposes, your perfection, your light, your compassion, your mercy, and your grace, and your patience. We want to see your glory. We want to see your truth. We want to see your grace. Who you are, Lord, you compel me to offer all that I am to you. We're asking that you would give to each of us your Holy Spirit, that you'd enable us to hear the voice of our God. That whatever it is that you're calling us away from, whatever it is that you're calling us to do or not to do, that we'd offer ourselves to you fully, without reservation, without fear, but in full faith and in full trust that who you have always been is who you will be. We look to you now, Lord, as we remember your body and your blood. We look to you, trusting in that promise that you gave yourself for the remission of all of our sins, past, present, and future. We lift up this cup that reminds us of, of your blood, this, this symbol of your blood that was shed and poured out for us, Lord. But at the same time, this, this cup of covenant, we drink of it freely, Lord, committing ourselves to you. The trusting, Lord, that you will keep us and that you will guide us and that you will make each one of us to be the man and woman of God that you desire us to be day in and day out, all in your timing. We trust you. We love you. We want to see you. We want to be like you. We ask that you create that spirit of unity within our body here. Lord, as we interact with brothers and sisters in this community, wherever they may be, may you unify us in the name of Jesus. May we go out and proclaim your gospel in boldness and love and in passion. May we be firmly committed to you in all ways, Lord, without, without compromise. But we don't look to ourselves to, to be successful in that, Lord. We look to you to cause us to be just like you.
We choose to follow you, Jesus. We want to follow you. You are worthy to be followed. It's in Jesus' name we pray.